Welcome to the Wing Chun Podcast, the Sifu's Stories, the place where the world's most renowned Sifus share their stories and insights. I am your host, Bogdan Brosho. We're here with uh, Sifu David Peterson, who um, is the author of Look Beyond the Pointing Finger, The Fighting Philosophy of uh, Wong Sun Leung. He's also one of the uh, first generations of instructors that um, Sifu Wong Sun Leung taught. He's currently teaching in Malaysia. Sifu Peterson, can you tell us a bit about how you discovered Wing Chun, how you uh, started out? Well, it all began for me back in the uh, very early 1970s. The, uh, the so-called Kung Fu boom, when the Hong Kong movies first started to appear in the Western cinemas, right. uh, got me inspired. I'd already been watching some uh, TV shows as a young boy that had me fascinated with Asian culture and, and all things to do with martial arts, one in particular, a Japanese serial called The Samurai. And so when these Chinese films started appearing, first, uh, I think it was Five Fingers of Death was the first one that sort of broke the doors down. And then very soon after, Bruce Lee's films started coming in rapid succession. Mm-hmm. And I was, just, I was just bitten by the bug. I wanted to know all about it. And of course, being a, a fan of Bruce Lee, like most people of my generation were and still are, we all wanted to know everything we could find out about Bruce Lee. Right. And one of the things we found out was that his original system was Wing Chun. So if you want to be as good as Bruce Lee, we figured you have to start the same way he did. So we're all searching for that secret, uh, secret to success, which was what we believed to be Wing Chun. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I think a lot of us actually started out because we knew of Bruce Lee, first of all, and then we got a bit, a bit curious about it. Um, in my case, for example, I had no idea that Bruce Lee started out with Wing Chun because I was studying some Japanese martial arts and um, uh, there was this Wing Chun school in, in the city where I was studying for, for college. And then when I heard that, when I heard that, Wing Chun, uh, that Bruce Lee did Wing Chun, I said, oh my God, I really need to check out the school. And then, mm. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so how did you actually start out? Did you go straight to, to China or? Um... Uh, my path started with uh, basically just messing around with friends who were taking martial art lessons. Mm-hmm. There were some doing karate, some doing taekwondo. There wasn't much in the way of kung fu initially around. It was, it was almost impossible to find someone. And then not too long after the movie started to gain popularity, small uh, advertisements started appearing in the back page of one of the, the main newspapers in Melbourne where I lived, advertising Shaolin martial arts. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we all knew because of the film was all about this mythical place called Shaolin where these fighting monks came from. So it was like, whoa, let's check this out. There's no Wing Chun around, but we can find out about this style. So I began my training with an instructor whose name was Sergio Matic Osterman. He was a Aust- uh, I think he was a Austrian... Italian mm-hmm. uh, gentleman who was living in New South Wales in uh, Sydney, which is quite a long way from, from Melbourne, particularly in those days when the cost of airfares was quite prohibitive. So if you wanted to go to Sydney, it was going to take about 10 to 12 hours to drive. But uh, luckily for us, he decided to come down to Melbourne. And so I signed up and I started taking classes. Mm-hmm. And then I'd been training with him maybe one or two years and we weren't making great progress because he was coming down f- from Sydney to Melbourne less and less often because he had issues back home in Sydney. Right. And so we were being left to our own devices quite a lot and not really making much progress in our skills. Mm-hmm. And I heard word that there was somebody else around who was teaching Wing Chun. 
and in fact was teaching a hybrid martial art that was made up of Wing Chun and other things. Mm -hmm. So I got interested and uh, did some training there and ended up at that school for close on 10 years. Wow. But as time, as time went by, I started to realize that I was running around doing all the work for this guy. He was driving the Porsche. He was living in a, in a nice house. I was putting myself through university, giving up all my spare time, printing his T-shirts, answering his phone calls, sticking up his posters, wow. running seven classes at one point in different parts of Melbourne and always given the same excuse, oh, you're not ready to learn more yet. You're not ready yet. Yeah. And I, I started hearing stories from people in the Chinese community because I was by that stage quite involved in the Chinese community because of my interest in Chinese studies. I was learning the language. And uh, it became pretty obvious to me that I was being given the runaround. So I started to research as far as I could, and the name that kept coming up was Wong Sun Lo. So eventually, after a, a rather nasty split from this guy, as it turned out, uh, which involved violence caused by him on me and, and several of his students, which is a whole long story I don't want to go into, wow. hence I never, never name the guy and I never give credit to it because I don't think he deserves it because his attitude was totally wrong. Yeah. But in the end, to cut the long story very short, I wrote to Wong Sun Leung and ended up in Hong Kong. And that was uh, at the very end of 1983. And my journey with real Wing Chun Kung Fu began then. Mm -hmm. How was it for you uh, meeting him for the first time? It was a fascinating meeting because I was obviously very nervous. I was meeting a, a living legend, mm -hmm. someone I'd read read about and heard about from people as being the penultimate Wing Chun instructor and the top student of Yip Man and Bruce Lee's big brother and the one who taught Bruce Lee probably most of his uh, primary introduction to the Wing Chun system. And at the same time, I was also extremely excited about the fact that I was finally going to be learning what I now knew was going to be real Wing Chun and not this make-believe and half-assed stuff that I was learning before. Uh, so... Um, the whole, whole thing was almost like a dream come true. And his first moments talking to me, he just put me at ease, made me feel very much at home, treated me like he'd known me for a very long time, and basically said to me, you've obviously gone through a lot to get to here. Um, you've wasted a lot of your time. Yeah. Money, you can get back again, but time you can't replace. So I'll promise you this, I won't make, I'll make sure that I won't waste any more of your time. That from now on you'll be re really learning. Wow, I just got a I just got a flashback from when I was reading your book, and um, this is one of the things that really stuck with me. Like money you mm. can replace, but time you cannot. That's yeah, yeah. Well, now that I'm 60 years of age, that sentence means much more to me because <laughs> there's a lot less sunsets in front of me than there are behind me. So I take every day seriously and every training session seriously, mm. and I want to give to my students what my teacher was so generous to give to me. And the other thing that struck me on that meeting was that I just arrived from Hong Kong. I was, to him at least, nobody special at all. I didn't have a real background in martial arts because I've been given 10 years of nonsense, mm -hmm. even though I'd only just discovered that. Mm -hmm. And he was, the guy standing in front of me was this incredible human being that I'd heard so much about. And he said to me a sentence that rung in my ears then and still hasn't stopped bouncing around in my brain. And that was, he said, I'm willing to learn from you anything that you can do to improve my goal for. And I thought, wow, this powerful. has got to be the teacher for me. That's, that's so humbling and so powerful at the same time. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I knew I was, I was standing in front of a man who was honest, 
who was humble, who was down to earth, and who had an open mind. And I couldn't ask for anything more. What do you feel was the most valuable thing that you got out of um, training and studying with uh, Wong Tsung Nung? I guess the, the most obvious thing is that I got the first-hand information in his mother tongue. Because by then I was speaking reasonably good Mandarin Chinese, mm -hmm. and Sifu wasn't too bad at Mandarin. He turned, turned, uh, taught himself to speak Mandarin by listening to this, the songs of a famous uh, pop star of that era called yeah. Teresa Deng, Deng Li Jun. So his Mandarin for a Hong Kong person was uh, quite good. And so we didn't have anything that got in the way of me understanding what he was teaching me. Mm -hmm. And if I had a question, I could ask it directly rather than going through an intermediary who might not have good English anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that was the biggest and most important dis difference between what I was learning and perhaps what other people learned, that we could communicate in the native language of the, of the system. And as my Ch Cantonese improved, we could switch to his actual mother tongue, which means I got an even better transmission of the information. Mm -hmm. And if anything failed and we couldn't communicate by talking, we could write it down in characters because I read and write Chinese as well. So I feel as though I was very fortunate because I was in a position to learn in great detail and get detailed answers to every question that I might have. So it was the first-hand information. Cool. So um, how long did you train with the... Uh with him? How long did you have like hands-on experience with uh... I was not able to stay there on a long-term basis because I had to work in Australia and, and I had to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. So every time I would get an opportunity to take leave from my work, because being a school teacher, there's an abundance of holidays, yeah. I would spend those holidays in Hong Kong. So on a, the break across the Christmas period, it amounted to almost two months. Mm -hmm. It was about six or seven weeks where I could be in Hong Kong. On the lesser holidays in the middle of the year when there were maybe two or three weeks, depending on which break it was, right. I would spend the entire two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was training. Every day the class was open, I'd arrive there by 4 o'clock in the afternoon and I wouldn't leave much before 11 p.m. at night. I didn't take a dinner break. Everyone else might go off and have a cup of tea or a meal. Right. I'd stay there and keep training. And then, of course, every time I returned to Australia, I would train like a crazy man to maintain my skills stay in touch with Sifu by letter and by telephone, mm -hmm. and on five, five separate occasions brought him to Melbourne so that he could teach my students directly and I could spend time in his company at a more leisurely pace instead of having to rush backwards and forwards. So I can't say that I was with him 24-7 for years, mm -hmm. but over a period of almost 15 years, I was there as often as I could be. Awesome, awesome. You know, you see videos of Wong Tsun Lung on, um, online now, and... Of course, many people watching probably heard of Wong Tsun Lung as being uh, the king of the talking hands in, um, in Hong Kong. But when you see him now in the videos, he's so calm and he's so relaxed. You don't see so much of that fighting spirit, right? Have you ever seen him fight or uh, have you ever seen his engine, his fighting engine turned on? I never saw Sifu actually fighting as in a full-on Baymo, a challenge fighter or anything of that nature. Uh, I arrived in Hong Kong well after those sorts of things had well and truly finished. But there were a few moments where there would be people in the classroom. Sometimes they'd be visitors who'd come to the school and wanted to feel what it was like. And sometimes it was just senior students who wanted to raise the stakes a little bit. And you would see a sort of a, a look come up of a Sifu's face where it was definitely a case of, okay, it's now business. Most of the time he'd have a little smile on his face and just be playing. But once the pressure was raised, 
-hmm. it became a lot more like, okay, now we're really, really working. And you just saw this kind of twinkle in his eye and his face would set and he would just go bum, 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 and, and shut people down really, really fast. And it would be all over in, in a blink of an eye. For myself personally, I always made it a point not to uh, disrespect him by trying to put a great deal of pressure on him when we trained. He was always willing to touch hands with, with all of us if we wanted to. Uh, we all made a point of not bothering him too much because uh, just we all felt the same thing. It wasn't right to expect him to train with us all the time. Right. But if you if you were rolling with him or doing a drill with him, he would tell you that he wanted you to come harder. He would actually grab your arm and say, hit me, hit me. Mm -hmm. And so he would raise the pressure himself until the point where he felt that we were experiencing what it was like to do the technique or the, to play the drill, if it was Chisa or whatever it was, with a little bit more uh, reality. But the one time that I really saw what I believe was the, the, the fighting spirit, so to speak, was on an occasion when he was visiting Melbourne. I, I think it might have been the second visit. I don't think it was the first one, but it, it was one of the two. And he'd come off the plane quite exhausted. I think it had been a late night in Hong Kong the night before. He'd been flying all, all night, all, all, I think it was all night long. And met, that meant about eight hours in a plane, plus the uh, business of transferring flights and all that sort of thing that happens when you're traveling. So he was very, very tired when he arrived. So my wife at the time and I offered up our, our bedroom as a, a more comfortable place for him to get some sleep. And he put his head down on the pillow and, and obviously fell asleep very quickly and, and went into a very deep sleep. So we just sort of sat downstairs and did all the things that we had to do in the meantime, preparing to take him to the city that evening to meet the students and to run a workshop. And then, of course, I became aware of the time that was getting late and we needed to get him moving. So without really thinking and not really considering that the man was jet lagged and, and uh, in a strange place, I wandered up the stairs. We were in a little townhouse at the time, so I wandered up to the, the first level yeah. and uh, walked in and leaned over him and sort of shook him on the shoulder, attacked him on the shoulder and said, Sifu, time to wake up. And all of a sudden his eyes snapped open and they looked up at me and I pretty much saw my life flash before me because there was just this feeling and this look. It was like, holy crap, what have you done? Yeah? And then... I sort of stood back a little bit and he kind of started to realize where he was and who I was. And then he just smiled and said, oh, okay, I'll get ready now. And then I went back, I sort of backed out of the room and went downstairs. And a little while later, he'd freshened up and he came down and he laughed and he said, uh, you know, one time when I was uh, regularly fighting, I almost knocked out my own mother because she tried to wake me like that. And she used to wake me from then onwards from, from the doorway by throwing socks at the bed. And I, and I said, oh, oh, well, I've learnt my lesson the hard way, so I'll make sure that I'll wake you from the doorway from now on too. Have your socks so, ready. Uh, that was as close as I got to being, Yeah. So that was as close as I got to seeing the, the fighting face of Wongson there. Awesome. Awesome. Can you share something with us uh, that most people don't know about Wong Chun Long? He was a, an incredible, uh, incredibly gentle man in his heart. A lot of people think of oh, Wong Chun Long, the great fighter, the, the legendary king of talking hands. But actually, he was a very sensitive and very caring person. And once he liked somebody, once he was a friend with someone, 
you were pretty much friends for life and he would do anything he could to look after you, to protect you, to help you if you're in trouble. And I know a lot of cases, I won't mention names or anybody, but I know lots of situations where people have been in, in problems with their life and Sifu has been there for them uh, in a big way. Mm-hmm. And he was also uh, a very, very gifted practitioner of calligraphy mm-hmm. and also a very gifted doctor of traditional medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of other skills under his hat that people aren't quite as aware of. His main claim to fame in Hong Kong in his later years was as a traditional doctor. He used to have a lot of people come to the school not to learn Wing Chun, but to be treated by him and uh, get remedies from him for their health. Wow. And during the uh, the um, uprising in China that happened in, well, I've forgotten the year now, I think it was 1990, uh, when was it, 1986, the, uh, the Tiananmen Massacre. Mm-hmm. He was actually instrumental in trying to help some of the people involved get across the border from China. Wow. He felt very, very strongly about sticking up for the little man and making sure that the justice prevailed. He'd been like that since a young man. Mm-hmm. In fact, since a boy, he'd... he'd gone into battle for his fellow kids and, and friends in the neighborhood if he felt there was an injustice. So that's something that a lot of people possibly don't realize about him, that he had a, a fantastic heart and really cared about humanity. And that's why when people say, oh, he's a, he's a, must have been a really tough guy, must have been a violent man, I always say, no, not at all. The reason he had the fights that he had wasn't because he was some nasty guy who wanted to hurt people mm-hmm. and he wasn't some tough guy who wanted to prove himself. He was just experimenting to see what Wing Chun's potential was and in turn what his own potential was. Mm-hmm. It was all a science experiment. And after he hit people and if he had seriously hurt them, he would always go to their aid and make sure that they were okay. And it's said, and I can't verify this 100%, but it's, it's spoken of amongst the senior students on and off over the years that he gave up on the Baymo after one particular fight where he hit a guy so hard that he fractured the guy's cheekbone and the eye fell from the eye socket. And instead of the fight being brought to an end so that the guy could get treatment, all the other people from that particular lineage, wherever they were from, I don't remember the system or the style, they all started arguing and and battling amongst themselves. And so by the time they'd stopped all the nonsense, it was too late to get the guy to the doctors and save his sight. And from that day onwards, every Chinese New Year, Sifu apparently sent a red packet full of cash to that man's family because he felt so bad about the fact that that guy had lost his sight and he he took the blame. He said it was all his fault. So there was a different side to the man than what most people know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very interesting. That's very powerful, actually. Especially for people who want to uh, test Wing Chun. um, um, I saw something the other day that they're trying to... um, to legalize basically open, um, empty fist fights and have it something like the UFC. Maybe think people are trying to test Wing Chun in yes. that sense or some and stuff like that, right? It's not just about the fight. It's also considering the fact that you are fighting a human being just like you. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I know of another fellow, uh, again, I won't mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody or get them into trouble. Mm-hmm. This is a, a someone that... Uh, Uh, I've known very, very long time from the UK. And at one time, he was uh, pretty much talked into going into what they refer to as the the pikey fights, the illegal boxing matches that sometimes take place in darkness in certain parts of the UK. Right. 
and he was sh shocked at what he did to his opponent. It was all over in something like 15 or 20 seconds, and it terrified him the actual amount of injury that he caused his opponent at the time. Wow. And he used purely Wing Chun technique that mm -hmm. he learnt under my instruction and some other people. Hmm. And he, he vowed at that time that he wouldn't do it again because he was so shocked at the potential of what the system could do under real pressure. Yeah, especially because we're hitting with the um, um, the yin side of the um, the fist and it slices open the face. So exactly. Very, yeah. very what do you feel? Let's let's talk about you a bit. What do you feel is something that people don't know about you? Can you share a, a story, a Wing Chun related story? I suppose the thing that people probably know that they know that I I travel around and and I and do some teaching overseas and and in doing so you get to meet a lot of interesting people but the most interesting person I think I've ever met in my travels wasn't uh, a Wing Chun person per se but mm -hmm. a, a most incredible human being and that was uh, the late Jesse Glover mm -hmm. Bruce Lee's first student in the UK uh, or in the USA mm -hmm. and um, I was actually uh, very fortunate to meet up with Jesse. It was a, as a result of my teacher's uh, passing that a lot of what's happened to me over these last 15, 20 years has happened. Uh, before, before my teacher, I was only interested in two things, traveling to Hong Kong as often as I could to train with him and bring him to Australia as often as I could afford to do so so that he could teach my students. I had uh, no wish to become famous, no wish to have schools around the world. Uh, I hadn't even thought about writing anything like a book. I'd, I'd penned a few simple articles in the local martial arts press. But my desire was about my own self-improvement and sharing what I could share with people that I wanted to share it with in Australia. But when Sifu passed away, it left a huge void, obviously, and suddenly the pressure fell on a handful of us who were somewhat better known because of exposure that we'd had in the press, in the martial arts press, people like Philip Bayer and myself and Gary Lamb. And also, um, after Sifu had passed away, uh, it came to my knowledge that he'd been saying some really generous things about me to at least several visitors that had come to Hong Kong. Uh, some people that knew me and some people that didn't at that time know me, but I've since got to know them. Mm -hmm. And like a, like a real Chinese father, uh, you never give praise to your son or daughter directly, but you'll go and talk about them to the neighbors and tell them the neighbors how proud you are of their efforts. That's the way the Chinese are. Mm -hmm. And so Sifu was fairly typical of, of that attitude. He would never pat us on the back and say, good job. But apparently he wasn't, uh, he didn't hesitate if someone asked opinions about people to pass on information about what he thought we were like as our standard of our skill level or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And so he would often pass comments about certain people. Uh, Sifu Barry Lee, for example, uh, one of my seniors in the family, he Sifu always said publicly, uh, I don't know that he said it to Barry, but he certainly said it in a lot of other places, that Barry Lee was the one person who'd always put his money on the table in a fight against anybody, mm -hmm. that Barry was the man who could carry the system into battle for him. I tur it turned out I, that I found out eventually that he'd been asked about, of your foreign students, who is the one that you feel teaches the most accurately, who passes on the information as closely to what you do? And from what I've been told, 
he said that I was the one that he felt was the one capable of of passing it on with a level of accuracy that he felt was was of a high standard. So apparently the word got around that I was held in that regard uh, because one of the people who had been told that was connected with Jesse Glover mm-hmm. and had mentioned it to Jesse. Yeah. And Jesse, who was Bruce Lee's first student in the U.S., had always been very keen to meet up with Wong Tin Leung because he'd heard stories from Bruce Lee about uh, Ah Leung, uh, Big Brother Leung, and how cool he was and how great a fighter he was, how he was the best Wing Chun man that ever lived from Bruce. And then over the years, he'd had other people that he knew had gone to Hong Kong and met with Masifu, the late John Ladalski being one. John was mentioned in uh, Jesse's second book that he wrote about Bruce Lee, and there's actually some photos shot in Sifu's school of the training. Mm -hmm. And so Jesse was dying to meet up with Wong Sun Leung and and learn firsthand what his Wing Chun was all about. And he'd even arranged for uh, a trip to Hong Kong to actually have that meeting finally happen. And all of a sudden, of course, the bad news came through that Sifu had passed away. So he was talking to this contact that we both share. Um, I'll mention the name. He's a good friend of mine, Greg Mannering. He's uh, based in Germany. He's over your way in the world. He's an animator of of very high regard, Uh, has worked for Disney and and many of the other famous uh, uh, animation companies. Mm -hmm. He's uh, even responsible for for some of the famous characters from uh, The Lion King and from The Iron Giant. And uh, Greg was talking to, to Jesse on a regular basis about all things martial arts, and he mentioned that he knew me because I'd been in contact with Greg over the years because of our Wing Chun connection. Right. Jesse immediately sent me an email, a personal email, and asked me if I'd come to the U.S., if I'd consider doing a seminar at his school in the U.S. Yeah. And that was the beginning of what has now amounted to dozens and dozens of trips all around the world and an exposure that I never, ever dreamed of in my own mind and something that I'd never even given thought to previously. It just all happened as a consequence of my teacher's passing. So in losing him, it gave me a personal chance to help share his legacy in ways that I never dreamed of. And eventually the book, the first book, which you spoke of at the beginning, and then some DVDs, which some people may have seen, and hundreds of articles now in various martial arts journals, and now most recently the the new book and our two documentary films. But all of these things were never planned. Mm-hmm. Being in Malaysia was never planned. None of these things were on a on a list of things to do. I wasn't like Bruce Lee with a ten year plan or a twenty year plan. So what? How was Jesse? Happened. What did what did um, what did stick from from meeting uh, Jesse? Basically, what impressed you? The most amazing thing about Jesse was that, like my Sifu, when you looked at Jesse, when you spoke with Jesse, you didn't feel like you're in the presence of anybody, uh, what's the right word, anybody imposing. Mm-hmm. They had a charisma of sorts, but you never felt un- never felt uncomfortable. Right. You didn't feel as if you should be afraid of them or, or bowing and groveling at their feet. They were just regular guys. Mm-hmm. And Jesse was incredibly cool. He'd ask a question and he'd deliver his answer very, very slowly and with no excitement in his voice, but you knew he took you seriously and everything he said made sense. And it was just like a reflection of my teacher. It was like I was talking to the same personality, but in a different body. And of all the people I've met over the 
he is, Jesse is the one that reminds me most of my teacher. There's just something about the two of them that they would have loved each other if they had Maybe hadn't that's why met. he felt that he really wanted to meet uh, Wong Sun Leung as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they, they shared a lot in terms of personality, in their attitude to, to combat, in their, uh, their desire to learn as much as they could about everything. Uh, and Sifu, Sifu was gifted in a lot of different areas, most of it self-taught, mm-hmm. uh, including the, the calligraphy. Mm-hmm. And Jesse was a voracious reader who could hold a conversation about anything. Wow. And it was an intelligent conversation. So um, if I had been able to sit between the two of them in the same room, that would just would have been magic. It, it, it didn't happen in this lifetime, but you never know what might happen in the, in the future. <laughs> <laughs> that, w- that would have been a crazy experience, huh? Actually, into interviewing oh, yeah. the three of you, that would be great. Yeah, um, but I did. I did share an, a nice uh, trio situation with the late Ed Hart as well, who was the second student of Bruce Lee. Right. Uh, Ed was on. His, Ed was in the last months of his life, sadly, when I met him. But he was also uh, like Jesse, an amazing human being. Again, a different personality and a different kind of delivery. And the man had actually died on the operating table two or three times already wow. and was extremely ill. Yeah. But he, when he was talking to you, he'd struggle to breathe, he'd struggle to talk, but he'd stand up and he'd demonstrate something and it was like someone in his 20s. He moved like lightning and hit like a truck. <laughs> and this was the quality that my Sifu and Jesse and Ed seemed to share, that they didn't look overly imposing yeah. and they didn't impress you with their that they're um, strong personality because they didn't have a strong personality. But, boy, when they did the work, it was brilliant. It was awesome. That's something to really look forward to. At least, you know, when you're, when you're sharing these stories, I imagine myself, uh, you know, getting older and and going into that uh, vibe, you know, of not being imposing but just being humble and allowing people to feel relaxed around me. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people well, would, would enjoy being that way. Yeah, I, I, I try really hard not to try to overwhelm my students and just be a regular person to them too. It's it's different here in Malaysia because most of the students are Chinese, uh, some Malay students and some Indian students and some foreigners as well. But mm-hmm. the majority are Chinese, their ethnicity is Chinese. So they already treat me in a way that's typical of Chinese culture's attitude towards a Kung Fu teacher. And so they give me a great deal of respect. I don't have to ask for it, and therefore I don't have to feel like I have to behave in a in a arrogant or cocky way, which is not me anyway. And so I I enjoy being with them because they just have this love for learning, and they love hanging out with me, and I enjoy hanging out with them. And so I don't see any need to try to overwhelm people, try to overly impress them with displays of violence. Or aggression, yeah. And yeah. I've, I've currently got a student here from Switzerland who's on his second visit in, in many months. He's uh, only just left and he's come back again because he enjoyed himself so much. And he said to me last night after our training session in Kuala Lumpur, he said, The thing I like about your school and your students and you is you're all so nice, everybody treats me so friendly. Yeah, and I yeah, said, Well, yeah. that's how it should be. I, I get really upset when I see people on the internet who just beat up on their students and and act like they're God's gift to mankind. I just don't get that. And that's because my Sifu wasn't like that. And I think it's definitely rubbed off that that's the way to behave. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
totally agree. Can you tell us a bit about the documentaries that you uh, you filmed? So John Little, who's quite famous as a historian on Bruce Lee, he's written more than a dozen books about Bruce Lee that every fan in the world has on their bookshelves. And I'm yeah. staring at about four or five copies at the moment myself while I'm talking to you. And he's done at least uh, three or four documentaries on or about Bruce Lee and, and his life. The most famous one, of course, is uh, Bruce Lee in his own words, which he was the first one that he did. Mm-hmm. John and I met up in China in, uh, what year was it now, 2000, end of 2012, right. because it was coming towards the anniversary of Bruce Lee's death. It was the 40th anniversary coming up in, in uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers had asked him to create a documentary telling the connection between Bruce Lee and the Wing Chun art for their 40th anniversary special edition Blu-ray of End of the Dragon. So uh, John had seen some of my material on, fa- on Facebook and on YouTube, and he was apparently impressed by the way I operate on camera, my delivery, my style of talking. Mm-hmm. And so he got in touch with me and said, would you be willing to come to China and shoot some segments? Mm-hmm. And I only had to think about it for about two or three seconds and said, yes, definitely, because I'd always been a fan of John and his work, so he was an opportunity to meet somebody I admired and be involved in something that I thought was a very important project to uh, help the public realize that there was a Bruce Lee Wing Chun connection. So I jumped at the chance, and uh, two of my students and my wife and I flew to China, and we met up with John uh, not far from the Shaolin Temple. We were staying in the city of Dangfeng, which is just down the road from Shaolin, mm-hmm. and we did a lot of the filming in and around the temple area. And we were only there for two days, but we shot, I think John says something like 12, 14 hours of footage in those in that time because he was so fascinated with what we were demonstrating and what we were saying and, and the stories that I was able to convey that he just got fascinated and wanted more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for us, the, doc, the documentary that he shot only ended up being 20 minutes and we had to share the screen with three other prominent people. Right. But uh, John liked what I did and he, he featured us as much as he could in that movie or that documentary and he immediately got in his mind this idea that the Wong Tillman story has to be told it's just too good not to share and he had so much footage left over that it was it belonged to him Warner Brothers had hired him to shoot and they just took the part that they wanted mm-hmm. so he said I've been thinking about doing a documentary about Wing Chun generally but he said I've changed my mind I want to shoot a documentary about your teacher mm-hmm. so we talked about it, and I said, yeah, I think it's possible. And he asked if the Wing Chun community could be relied upon to help fund because he said, we're not working with a big studio. We're not going to get a lot of money. Right. We need to do, do this ourselves. So he said, do you think that we can manage it? And I said, look, I can only try. So I started seeking assistance by telling people that we had this plan to make the documentary. Mm-hmm. Sadly, in my naivety, I, I had over and over um, – thought it and figured that the Winchin community would jump at the chance and be throwing money in the bucket immediately. In the end, we didn't really receive very much funding at all. Mm-hmm. But John and I were so determined to get it done that I basically dug into pockets that I didn't even have money in, and my wife and I basically put our life savings into the project. So uh, it's it's not a, a, a stretch of, of exaggeration to say that we funded about 85 or 90% of the, the move overall and wow. I don't mm-hmm. believe I'll ever see that money again it's gone mm-hmm. um, even now if I wanted the movie they said they would 
support the movie. They said that they would pay for the movie. It isn't happening, but that's the way it goes. Mm -hmm. But the main job was not to make money. The the goal, the dream was get Sifu's real history recognized, get his name known, mm -hmm. and make sure he gets finally recognized for the achievements and the legacy that he's given to the Wing Chun world and the martial arts world generally. And so John, in his own clever way, was able to manage to come up with two documentaries for the price of one. So we managed to focus on Sifu and his life and his achievements in the main film, which is the one called Wong Tsung, The King of Talking Hands. Mm -hmm. And then John decided that my story was worth telling as well. So we created a, a shorter documentary and he called that one the art of Wong Sun Lung, a Wing Chun journey. Mm -hmm. And it's basically how the system was developed by Wong Sun Lung and, and what the system is all about and my journey through learning the system and now sharing the system with the world. Awesome. And so it was, uh, well, it was earlier last year. I can't remember now what month. I think it was October mm -hmm. when we finally managed to get the last of the funds that we needed to finish it all off and uh, make the films available. And where can people find the documentaries? Well, hopefully more people will want to have a look at the documentaries. We think they're worth it. And those that have seen it can't say enough good things about them. Right. It's just not enough people actually discovering. So if people are interested, mm -hmm. there's a direct link at uh, www.wciondemand.com. It stands for Wing Chun Illustrated On Demand.com. Okay. If you can't remember that, you can just go to the Wing Chun Illustrated website mm -hmm. and they'll find a link there. Awesome. I'll probably post and, the link uh, in the description of uh, of this episode as well. Cool. That would be great. That would be very helpful and very kind. Awesome. Mm. Okay. Sifu Peterson, thank and, you. And uh, I'll go on public record yet again that our promise was our promise was in front of the Wong Chun and Wing Chun community back at our big gathering in Hong Kong in 2014 that if the films ever did make any kind of a profit, mm -hmm. that that money would go to Sifu's family, his sons and his daughter and his wife, and we're sticking by that. So if the films ever break even, if there's actually any money made, mm -hmm. that's where the money's going. It's not going in my pocket. It's not going in anybody's investments pocket. Mm -hmm. It's all about Sifu's family. Uh, that was the promise at the start, and that's the promise now. Awesome. So if people, if people support the project, they're supporting Wong Sinan's family. And it's important they know that. I think we also, you know, we owe it somehow because without Wong Sun Lung, you would have no Bruce Lee. Without Bruce Lee, you would have, you have like less than a quarter of the Wing Chun community that exists today. So mm. it is part of our legacy. It is just like a sign of gratitude, most of all. Exactly. That's one of the reasons why John and I went along and did everything we could. We struggled for over four years to make the documentaries because we're trying to say thank you. This is our way of saying thank you for what he gave us yes. awesome okay guys head out to um winton illustrated on their website you'll find both documentaries over there i'll post a link in the description uh sifu peterson i think our time is about up uh thank you so much for for your time in this this interview it's been a pleasure Vinny. absolutely enjoyed it and i'm just sorry that the time's gone so fast yeah Guys, I've edited this uh, podcast, but we had some very funny technical issues, and uh, I'm very grateful for Sifu Peterson's patience on the matter. So, my pleasure. Always, always willing to sit it out to make sure we get the job done. Awesome. 
Guys, so head out, click the link in the description, check out the documentaries on Wong Sulung and Sifu David Peterson. And as always, go to addictedtowingchun.com for some awesome free stuff. Thank you for listening.